So this week we're in Ezekiel chapter 9, verses 1 to 11. It's the whole chapter, and I've titled it, God Won't Judge the Righteous with the Wicked. And as we go through, we'll realize that that's an awesome promise, really awesome promise. So, Father, I do thank you that you will not judge the righteous with the wicked. Lord, we are spared from your wrath. And Lord, that's true in the sense that we are spared from the consequences of our sin, eternity in hell, and instead you were punished in our place. And now we are safe in your hands. We are spared from your wrath. And as we'll enter this morning, we're also spared from the wrath of God, the wrath of the Lamb being poured out on this evil world during the tribulation. So thank you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's do a memory verse. So Ezekiel 36, 26 to 27. You ready? Who can do it without looking yet? All right. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. It's not you might, but you will. There you go. So, last week, we've started a new section. It's chapters 8 through 11. It's been about 14, 15, 16 months uh, since Ezekiel received his first vision or set of messages from God. And they mainly dealt with the Babylonian siege of Jerusalem. Remember, he made the chalkboard, you know, the clay tablet, and he drew the city and drew the siege mounds and the Babylonian army attacking them and all that kind of stuff. And acted out for over a year the siege on Jerusalem. He was laying on his side. So. We learned about that a few weeks ago. Now, again, in chapters 8 through 11, it's a new prophecy. It's more than a year later, and it's a new vision. So the big picture with this one in chapters 8 through 11 is God withdrawing his presence from the temple because of the persistent sins of his people. They are unrepentant. They're not willing to change. They're not willing to repent. And the key verse that we looked at last week was in Ezekiel chapter 8, verse 6. It says, Furthermore, he said to me, Son of man, do you see what they are doing, the great abominations that the house of Israel commits here, to make me go far away from my sanctuary? And we're going to go into that more next week, but basically what we're going to find is that God, slowly and unwillingly and reluctantly and gradually and stepwise, he moves away from where his physical presence, the Shekinah glory, had been dwelling above the cherubim, the angels on the mercy seat. If you remember, the mercy seat was sitting on top of the Ark of the Covenant. And what's inside the Ark of the Covenant? The Ten Commandments, the two-tone tablets, and a couple other things too. So God's presence has been there for literally hundreds of years, ever since Solomon dedicated the temple in Second Chronicles 7, 1-3. And I think we'll leave that for next week, that scripture. We'll read that next week. and. One of the main points last week that we picked up on was how the elders were the elders of Jerusalem and Judah were outwardly worshipping God, but the hearts were full of sin and idolatry. And they had 
disgusting and pornographic images covering the inner walls of the temple. And of course, that represents their hearts. So we can apply that to us. We are the temple of God. What's inside our hearts? So what should have been a place where God was worshipped and glorified had degenerated into a temple secretly dedicated to worshipping idols. And the key verse there was, Then he said to me, Son of man, have you seen what the elders of the house of Israel do in the dark? Every man in the room of his idols. So in the, basically in his heart. Outwardly they were worshipping God. They were, you know, had the senses for prayer and all that kind of stuff. So the main application for us is that we need to be diligent to take every evil or sinful thought captive. And we read that in 2 Corinthians 10 verses 3 to 6. But we can also check ourselves for hidden motives. Why do we do certain things? Right? What is my real intention? What is my true desire? And we can pray Psalm 139, 23 and 24. Search me, God, and try me. And so we can know the condition of our hearts, what we are truly seeking, what we truly desire. And the way to know what's really in your heart is what you do when no one's around. What are you thinking when no one's around? What would you like to do if he had no restraints? That's something to think about, isn't it? Because often we don't do things because we're fearful of consequences, what other people think of us. But we should be doing things because God wants us to, not because we're fearful of what will happen if we do the wrong thing. So this week, chapter 9, and I've called this the principle of not judging the righteous with the wicked. So let's read the chapter. Then he called out in my hearing with a loud voice, saying, Let those who have charge over the city draw near, each with a deadly weapon in his hand. And suddenly six men came from the direction of the upper gate, which faces north, each with his battle axe in his hand. One man among them was clothed with linen and had a writer's inkhorn at his side. They went in and stood beside the bronze altar. Now the glory of the God of Israel had gone up from the cherub where it had been to the threshold or the front door of the temple. And he called to the man clothed with linen who had the writer's inkhorn at his side. And the Lord said to him, Go through the midst of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and cry over all the abominations that are done within it. To the others he said in my hearing, Go after him, through the city and kill. Do not let your eyes spare, nor have any pity. Utterly slay old and young men, maidens and little children and women. But do not come near anyone on whom is the mark. Begin at my sanctuary. So they began with the elders who were before the temple. These are the ones that had the images and the abominations inside their hearts. Then he said to them, Defile the temple and fill the courts with the slain. Go out. And they went out and killed in the city. So it was that while they were killing them, I was left alone. Ezekiel was left alone. And I fell on my face and cried out and said, Ah, Lord God, will you destroy all the remnant of Israel in pouring out your fury on Jerusalem? Then he said to me, The iniquity or the sin of the house of Israel and Judah is exceedingly great, and the land is full of bloodshed, and the city full of perversity. For they say, the Lord has forsaken the land, and the Lord does not see. And as for me also, my eye will neither spare 
nor will I have pity, but I will recompense their deeds on their own head. Just then the man clothed with linen, who had the inkhorn at his side, reported back and said, I have done as you commanded me. So the first section is the sealing of the righteous before the judgment begins. And we're going to see other stories in Scripture of how this plays out too. This is not the only time this happens. It's a pattern that you'll see throughout the Scriptures. So we'll just read verses 1 and 2. Then he called out in my hearing with a loud voice, saying, Let those who have charge over the city draw near, each with a deadly weapon in his hand. And suddenly six men came from the direction of the upper gate, which faces north, each with his battle axe in his hand. One man among them was clothed with linen and had a writer's inkhorn at his side. They went in and stood beside the bronze altar. So, who are these guys who have charge over the city? What do you think? You think it's men or angels? Angels, yeah, they're angels. A quote here from Feinberg. Those who had charge over the city were those whom God set to watch over the welfare of the city. They were not earthly agents but heavenly. Angels are frequently called men because of their outward appearance. A quote from Feinberg there. And later we're going to read a section from Genesis where the angels, when they went to Sodom to rescue Lot, it says in one part of the sentence, the men were there, and then it says in the next part of the sentence, the angels took them. So angels are called men sometimes in the scriptures because they look like men. They come in the appearance of men. So, Angels, they have responsibilities, and this is good and bad angels, faithful and fallen, that relate to specific geographic locations. Interesting, eh? So, examples. In Daniel's day, a demonic spirit was assigned to Persia and to Greece. And you'll see that in Daniel chapter 10. Remember when Gabriel was having to fight the angels to get to Daniel and there's a prince of Persia and the prince of Greece, demonic angels, fallen angels. And Daniel 12.1 says that Michael has responsibility regarding Israel. So Michael's like the guardian angel for the nation of Israel. Satan was connected with the king of Babylon in Isaiah 14. And it's interesting in Mark chapter 5 verse 10, it indicates that the demons wanted to stay in one place and not to be sent to another place by Jesus. I got those points from David Guzik. So, in verse 1 and 2, it says, each with a deadly weapon in his hand, each with a battle axe in his hand. So, six angels there for judgment, holding weapons, and, yeah, the theme here is judgment. Sin will be judged. Now, they came from the direction of the upper gate, which faces north. Now, this gate was built by Jotham, and it was called the Upper Benjamin Gate, or the New Gate. If you read other scriptures, it's called different things in different places. And this gate was towards the north of the city from which direction the Babylonian army would come. So coming from that way, it represented where the army was going to come from. And it also represents the location of where the worship of the idols had taken place. In verse 2 it says, One man among them was clothed with linen and had a writer's inkhorn at his side. So there was one angel in addition to the six who was dressed differently and carried a writer's inkhorn at his side ready to write. Now what does this mean? Well, I found this quote. At his side was a writing case or inkhorn. The word is peculiar or is only found in this chapter and may be a loan word from Egyptian where it refers to the scribes' writing equipment incorporating 
pen, ink horn, and wax writing tablet. So basically, it's his recording things. He's got a pen and he's got a piece of paper, basically. And they went in and stood beside the bronze altar. So they're ready for service. And where are they standing? Everything has a reason in the scriptures why it's there. They stand beside the bronze altar. What does the bronze altar represent? Judgment. It's where sin is judged. If you were a worshipper in those days, in the Old Testament, you would place your hand on the head of the lamb, or the calf, or the goat, and you would confess your sin onto that animal. Now the animal had to be perfect, remember? Just like Jesus was perfect, that animal had to be perfect. And because that lamb, usually the lamb, was now guilty because you had confessed your sin onto the lamb, that lamb then was killed. It was a sin offering. And so the altar is a place where sin is judged. And of course, the worshipper, the one who'd actually committed the sins, he went away alive and the lamb died. It's a picture of the substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So what the worshipper understood by this is that he was guilty of sinning. The penalty for sin is death. But the lamb was his symbolic substitute dying in his place. And so what it all meant was that by faith, he looked forward to the coming Saviour. He would be the perfect Lamb of God that would literally take on the sin of all mankind and die in our place. He would be our substitute. And John the Baptist said, John one twenty nine. the next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So why did I say all that? Well, if you choose not to receive God's forgiveness, then you will be judged yourself. Even though the sin is already paid for, you haven't received that forgiveness, and then you will still experience the wrath of God. John chapter 3 says that those who are not believers, they abide under the wrath of God. So, think about this vision. Ezekiel's seeing all these people worshipping and doing their things, you know, worshipping idols in the temple compound and whatever, and these angels are walking in there, and do you think the people can see them? Ezekiel can, but the people can't. So this is all invisible to all the people who are living there. You know, they're walking past all their sun worshippers and the, the women mourning for tables, as we read about last week. But they can't see them. And for us, guess what? There's angels, I bet, in this room right now. You know, they're probably worshipping with us. So there's a spiritual realm, which is... Invisible to us most of the time. God does allow us to see some things sometimes, like Mary. The angel spoke to Mary. The angel spoke to Daniel. The angel spoke to John, etc. So there are exceptions to the rule, but generally speaking, we live in the flesh and not in the spiritual realm. Uh, verses 3 and 4. Now the glory of the God of Israel had gone up from the cherub, where it had been, to the threshold or the front door, of the temple. Now there's only one door in the temple, so it's just the door, really. And he called to the man clothed with linen, who had the writer's inkhorn at his side. And the Lord said to him, Go through the midst of the city, 
through the midst of Jerusalem and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and cry over all the abominations that are done within it. So we're going to go into the presence of God leaving the temple next week. So we just move on to the rest of these verses. In verse 4, it says, Go through the midst of the city, put a mark on their foreheads. So this angel, the one with the writing kit, he goes through and he marks all the righteous people. Why? I'm going to quote from David Guzik. God commanded the one with the inkwell to mark the righteous men of the city. Ezekiel 9.6 shows this was a protective identification to protect them in the coming invasion and also to protect them spiritually for the age to come. It shows that even when judgment comes upon an entire nation, God still knows how to mark and identify the righteous. And there's something that's interesting in what was actually put on the person's forehead. A quote by Wright, There is a prophetic significance in the Hebrew word for the mark. It is a Hebrew letter, T or Tor, which at that time was written as a cross. So these righteous people, these people who sighed and cried over sin, they had a cross written on their foreheads. Wright continues, Without being superstitious, we can rejoice in this anticipation of salvation through the death of Christ on the cross. Now this thing, why is God putting a mark on them? Well, back in the day, that was very common. They would put marks on things and people to identify them, to distinguish them from others, as a mark of ownership. And a quote from Clark, This is an allusion to the ancient, everywhere used custom of setting marks on servants and slaves to distinguish them from others. It was also common for the worshippers of particular idols to have the idols mark upon their foreheads and their arms, etc. And that was Clark. So basically, if you were worshipping a particular idol and that was your thing, you would have the mark of the idol. So people would say, oh, you know, you're worshipping the sun or you're worshipping Tamers or, or whatever it was. You could, they could look at you and say, that's who you are, that's what you do. But what does God do? If we belong to him, he puts his mark on us. That's pretty cool, eh? So other examples of God marking people for their protection and to demonstrate his ownership of them. We have Passover, the blood on the doorposts of the Israelites' houses on the night of Passover in Exodus 12. We have the scarlet cord in Rahab's window, Joshua 2 and chapter 6. Revelation 7.3 describes the 144,000 Jewish evangelists being sealed on their foreheads. And they all survive to the end of the tribulation. And for us, all believers are sealed or marked by the Holy Spirit. And those who are alive at the time of the rapture will be taken away, taken up, caught up, to spare them from the judgment to come on those who dwell on the earth during the tribulation. And there's a promise in Revelation 3.12 that Jesus will write on us believers the name of God, the name of the new Jerusalem, and his own new name as a reward and to show that we belong to him. Isn't that cool? So when we get to see him, when we see him face to face, he's going to write on us the name of the Father, his new name, and the name of the new Jerusalem. So that's where we belong. That's who we belong to. So There's another counterfeit mark. It's called the mark of the beast. Remember Revelation 13, 16? People will take the mark of the beast and pledge their allegiance to Satan. 
Okay? And if you take his mark, you belong to him too. So don't take the mark of the beast. If you're not saved now and you go into the tribulation, make sure that you choose Christ and not Satan. A quote from John Corson. Are you a marked man or woman? Yes, <laughs> we're all marked. You are either marked by compassion, saying, Lord, I love you and I care about people, or you are marked for destruction, saying, I don't care about the Lord and I don't care about people. But as believers, we are told in Ephesians 1.13 that we have been sealed or literally marked with the Holy Spirit. It also says in verse 4, Put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and cry over all the abominations that are done within it. So, why this distinction between those who enjoy sin and those who don't? Interesting, isn't it? Well, the ones who love God will hate sin. The closer we grow to God, the more like Him we become. And so we begin more and more to love the things that God loves and to hate the things that God hates. That's how we, over the course of our life, become more pure and we don't become sinless, but we do sin less because we hate that and therefore we don't want to do it. It's like your food. If you don't like a certain food, you just don't eat it, right? And that's what sin becomes. It becomes something you just don't like doing to a greater and greater extent. So how much we genuinely hate or loathe sin is a good measure of how much we actually love God or how close we are to him. That's a application for us there. Now the men who sigh, and I want to just talk about what this word sigh means so we can understand it. There's a quote from Block here. He says, Sigh will resurface in chapter 21 verses 6 and 7 where the moaning will be a symptom of a broken heart and intense grief over impending doom. So intense grief. In chapter 24, verse 17, Sai describes the grief that Ezekiel expresses over the death of his wife. So when his wife died, he sighed. It was a deep mourning. And here the scribe is to search for individuals who will display a similar emotion over all the abominations being perpetrated in Jerusalem. So all the false worship, all the violence, all the sexual immorality, all those things, the child sacrifice, sighing and crying over these things. You know, in our world, it's really easy to get desensitized. Are we sighing and crying over sin, or are we enjoying it? And one way to be desensitized is to expose ourselves to it unnecessarily. Well, you go to work and you're going to hear swearing, that that's fair enough. Can't avoid that. But you pray for God's protection. But if you, you know, put yourself in positions where you don't have to be, and you are exposed to those things, images, you know, even just watching TV and stuff like that. You're exposing yourself to these things. And you are programming yourself to love sin. And if you love sin, what does James say? Whoever makes himself a friend of this world is at enmity with God. So we need to be careful about what we allow to influence us because it can cause us to start to love sin and we can become desensitized to sin, which means we've also become desensitized to God and his love. A quote from Trapp, Let us mourn in time of sinning, so we shall be marked in times of punishing. We'll be marked, we'll be protected. 
And Maya says, amid scenes of judgment, whether in the church or the world, there is always a remnant upon whom is the mark. On Lot in Sodom, on Israel, amid the plagues of Egypt, on Rahab in the fall of Jericho, on the 144,000 at the Great Tribulation. They are safe amid the fiery indignation which devours the adversaries. So now I just want to focus on this application and look at other parts of the scriptures to show you that this is not just a one-off thing. This is a whole theme that runs through the whole Bible. So the fact that God will not judge the righteous is really important to understand. Abraham understood, and he expressed it very clearly when he was interceding or pleading for the life of Lot and his family. Now where did Lot live? Sodom. And where was God going to destroy? Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns. So Abraham's prayer or intercession with God in Genesis chapter 18 verses 23 to 26. And Abraham came near and said, Would you also destroy the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there were 50 righteous within the city. Would you also destroy the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous that were in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing as this, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous should be as the wicked. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? So the Lord said, If I find in Sodom 50 righteous within the city, then I will spare all the place for their sakes. Amazing, isn't it? God will not judge the righteous with the wicked. He is a good judge. He will not condemn the innocent. So what happened with Sodom? Abraham kept on interceding with God and he got the number down to 10. And God said, I won't destroy Sodom and Gomorrah and all the other towns if there were at least 10 people. But there weren't. There was only four. And so what did God do? Let's read it in Genesis 19, 15 to 17 and 22. When the morning dawned, the angels, and here we have the angels in the next verse called the men, the angels urged Lot to hurry, saying, Arise, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be consumed in the punishment of the city. And while he lingered, the men took hold of his hand, his wife's hand, and the hands of his two daughters, the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. So it came to pass, when they had brought them outside, that he said, Escape for your life. Do not look behind you, nor stay anywhere in the plain. Escape to the mountains, lest you be destroyed. Hurry, escape there, for I cannot do anything until you arrive there. So verse 22, notice that. Hurry, escape there, for I cannot do anything until you arrive there. God simply could not judge the wicked until all the righteous had been removed. Even it's just four people. And even those four people didn't really want to leave. <laughs> you know? They were lingering. They didn't want to leave their possessions and you know, all their other family behind. And it's really sad. It's the same with the flood. God could not send the flood until all eight righteous people had entered into the door of the ark and God had shut the door himself and they were safe inside the ark. Remember in the New Testament, Jesus is the door and we enter the door for salvation. And so the ark is a picture of salvation. Now, I just want to point out 
that Lot was not a strong believer, yet God still rescued him. Lot had compromised badly with the world, and he had blown his witness. You know, he went to his son's in-law, and he said, look, God is going to judge this city. God is going to destroy it. You need to come with me. And they laughed at him and thought he was joking. Because he was compromised with the world, because he had become worldly as a believer, people didn't listen to him. So his talk didn't match his walk. Or his walk didn't match his talk, whichever way you want to say it. Therefore, he had no credibility. And they laughed at him when he warned them. But despite Lot's compromise, despite Lot sinning, God knew that Lot belonged to him. Lot was a true believer. And we'll read that soon in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 7. Why did God rescue Lot, even though he was a, a sinner and he was compromising in his Christian walk? Well, he was saved by grace, as we all are. So I just want to point out here, don't be deceived. None of us will get to heaven because of our good works. Okay, Lot is a good example of this. It's Christ's merit or goodness. It's his righteousness that gets us there, not our own. Our own righteousness is as filthy rags, Isaiah 64 verse 6. And yes, we will be rewarded for our faithfulness to God once we are saved, but our salvation is a free gift. And so is our sanctification and glorification where we get a new bodies and stuff. We can't earn any of those things. So a great passage that I like, which sums up the fact that God is a good and just judge and therefore must deliver the righteous but condemn the wicked is Second Peter chapter 2, verses 4-9. to It says, For God did not spare even the angels who sinned. He threw them into Tartarus. In your Bible, hell, but literally the, the word is Tartarus. It's a place in the middle of the earth. It's like a prison for demons. In gloomy pits of darkness where they are being held until the day of judgment. And God did not spare the ancient world, the pre-flood world, except for Noah and the seven others in his family. Noah warned the world of God's righteous judgment, so God protected Noah when he destroyed the world of ungodly people with a vast flood. See, what did God do? He protected Noah when he destroyed the world with a flood. Later God condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and turned them into heaps of ashes. He made them an example of what will happen to ungodly people. But God also rescued Lot out of Sodom because he was a righteous man. You look at his life and you go, was he really? But God knows who are his. Again, we're not saved by our own works, we're saved by grace. I'll go from verse 7 again. But God also rescued Lot out of Sodom because he was a righteous man who was sick of the shameful immorality of the wicked people around him. So in his heart, he wasn't really enjoying it. Isn't that true for us as believers when you start to compromise? We really don't like it, but we'd go along anyway. Yes, Lot was a righteous man who was tormented in his soul by the wickedness he saw and heard day after day. So Lot was someone who sighed and mourned over sin, even if it was just on the inside. He wasn't doing outwardly. So you see, the Lord knows how to rescue godly people from their trials, even while keeping the wicked under punishment until the day of final judgment. So you think, oh, God isn't judging the wicked now, but there will come a day of final judgment and God will make everything right. Everyone will get what they deserve. 
Why was Lot, I just want to talk about Lot for a minute, why was Lot so compromising? Why was Lot in such a bad place in his Christian walk, if I can call it that? He chose to go towards Sodom because the grass was greener, literally, better for his cattle, more money. So basically, he chose a good job over his family. He took his family to a place where there was corruption, there was a lot of sin. And as a result, he lost some of his family, his family was corrupted. And so, for the sake of worldly gain, Lot lost almost everything. He even lost his wife because she turned back, remember? She turned back. She was so influenced by the world that Lot took her to that she didn't want to leave. She turned back. The angels dragged her out by her hand. She was lingering like Lot was, but Lot was able to, okay, I've got to get out of here. I know judgment's coming, but his wife. And so the decisions we make as the leaders of our home, guys, is really important. Well, how's the saying go? The little feet will follow. So now we go to the next application. Believers will not go through the tribulation. This is what I believe, and I'll try and explain why. So what we have established a biblical principle that God will not judge the righteous with the wicked. And I want to apply this now to the pre-trib rapture. So why am I so convinced that Jesus will come back at the rapture and take all true believers with him to heaven before the tribulation begins. That's the pre-tribulation rapture. So, the big reason, God will not judge the righteous with the wicked. It's like throwing the innocent person in jail with a guilty person. So, consider the purpose of the seven-year tribulation. It's for God to judge the wicked, those who dwell, who make their home on the earth. It's for unbelievers only. So, where's our citizenship? Those who dwell on the earth is one word in the Greek and it describes those who find this earth as their home. They make this world system their home. They find their satisfaction in this world. But for us, says in Philippians, our citizenship is in heaven. We find our satisfaction, our joy, not in the things of this world, this world system which is run by Satan, but we find our joy and satisfaction in the kingdom of God. And our king is in heaven. Revelation 3.10 Because you have kept, past tense, my command to persevere, I will also keep you from, and the Greek there is ek or out of, the hour of trial. So keeping us from the time of trial, which shall come upon the whole world to test or try those who dwell on the earth. Again, the unbelievers. Those whose citizenship belongs on this earth. As says in the scripture, those who are written in the earth. So I just want to make a note here about kept my command to persevere. It's past tense. Okay, It's something that believers have done, not something that we still have to do. That's really important to understand. Something we have done, not something we still have to do. Believers persevere by God's strength, not their own. God is faithful to complete what he started. Yeah, sanctification, justification, glorification. He will finish that. He will do that in us. Now, 1 John 4 verse 4, it says, You are of God, little children, and have overcome them, 
because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. So how do we overcome? By our own effort or because we have God living inside of us. Yeah. Again, it's not us. Galatians 2.20, it's Christ who lived his life in us. And First John chapter 5, verses 4 and 5, and just reading apart from verse 5, who is he who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? So how do we overcome? We just believe in Jesus and God does the rest. See, Jesus won the victory when he died on the cross. All we do is enjoy the spoils of the victory. Death no longer has any hold over us and God's plan and will for our lives cannot be thwarted or stopped. So we enjoy and we live in God's victory, Christ's victory over sin. So again, I just want to point out what's the promise here? God will keep us out of the time of the tribulation. Now the opposite of this, just to make it clear, is having to go through something. Okay, So Noah, he wasn't taken out of the time of the flood, but he had to go through the flood. He was protected in the flood. And Israel will have to go through the tribulation. They are not protected from the time of the tribulation, but they'll be protected from the effect of the tribulation. In contrast, Enoch, remember, seventh from Adam, he was taken up because he was righteous. He was removed before God judged the world by the global flood. Genesis 5.24 And in a very similar way, the church will be taken up, removed, before the coming judgment that will come upon all those who dwell on the earth. And 1 Thessalonians 5.9-11 For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Therefore comfort each other and edify one another just as you also are doing. So if you read First Thessalonians chapters 4 and 5, it's talking about the rapture, when the trumpet will sound and the dead in Christ will be raised. And it's wake or sleep. What does that mean? Well, it says that not everyone is going to die. Not all believers are going to die. There will come a day when, when the rapture happens, when the trumpet sounds, God will take those who belong to him up to be with him. This is the comfort that it's talking about here. We will not have to go through the tribulation. John 14, 1-4, what does it say there? Christ has gone to heaven, he's preparing a place for us, and he's going to come back to receive us to himself so we can be where he is. So that's the promise that we have. Now, we move on to the next section, which is the destruction of the wicked. Chapters 9, verses 5 to 7. So basically, the righteous are safe. They've been marked, and now it's time to judge the wicked. Now, in this case, they have to go through the judgment, but they're protected in the judgment. Ezekiel 9, 5 to 7. To the others he said in my hearing, Go after him through the city and kill. Do not let your eyes spare, nor have any pity. Utterly slay old and young men, maidens and little children and women, and do not come near anyone on whom is the mark. They're very important, but do not come near anyone on whom is the mark. And begin in my sanctuary. So they began with the elders who were before the temple. 
Then he said to them, Defile the temple and fill the courts with the slain. Go out. And they went out and killed in the city. So, if you're not marked by this protective mark of God with the cross on your forehead, then you will be killed. It's like the Passover. If you didn't have the blood on your door, and you were the firstborn, you would die. So, how old you were, how wealthy you were, how good you looked, your position in the community, and your talents, skills, whatever, all meant nothing. If you didn't have the mark, you would die. So 2 Chronicles 36.17 described the fulfillment of this. Remember, this is a vision, okay? It's not a reality. It's not something that other people can see. God used the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, to fulfill this. This is what Ezekiel has been saying the whole time, that Babylonians are going to come. So let's read the fulfillment of this. 2 Chronicles 36.17 Therefore he brought against them the king of the Chaldeans, or the Babylonians, who killed their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary, exactly like God said, and had no compassion on young men or virgin, or on the aged or the weak. He gave them all into his hand. So exactly as God said, if he weren't marked, he would die. Verse 6, it also says, and begin at my sanctuary. Why begin at the temple? Because to whom much is given, much is required. Luke 12:48. So with knowledge and privilege come what? Responsibility, accountability. And the same is true for the church today. What does it say in 1 Peter 4:17? For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? So God will clean his house up first. And that's why the first people who were judged were the elders who were worshipping God or pretending to worship God in the temple. They were the first ones to be killed. Uh, A quote from Feinberg, In their sanctuary God should have been the most honoured, but there he was most dishonoured and provoked, and there his holiness would most fully and certainly be vindicated, meaning that's where the greatest judgment, the strongest judgment would happen. And verse 7, defile the temple and fill the courts with the slain. And a quote from David Guzik. In Ezekiel 6, 4 and 5 and 6, 13, God promised that he would defile and desecrate the pagan altars on the high places because of Israel's idolatry. Here, he promised the same desecration at his own house. Because his house had become wicked, you see. Now, this last section is really important for us as we share the gospel with those around us. And I've titled The Proper Motivation of God's or Christ's Ambassadors. And it is compassion. We need to have compassion. We need to love them. And we're going to see, as we read these verses, that Ezekiel was a man of compassion. He was very strong. He was very bold. But underneath, he had a soft heart. So let's read verses 8 through 11. So it was that while they were killing them, I was left alone and fell on my face and cried out and said, Ah, Lord God, will you destroy all the remnant of Israel in pouring out your fury on Jerusalem? So here's Ezekiel falling on his face and crying out for God's mercy on these people as they're being killed in his vision. Then he said to me, The iniquity of the house of Israel and Judah is exceedingly great, and the land is full of bloodshed, and the city full of perversity, for they say, The Lord has forsaken the land, and the Lord does not see. 
And as for me also, my eye will neither spare, nor will I have pity, but I will recompense their deeds on their own head. Just then the man clothed with linen, who had the ink on at his side, reported back and said, I have done as you commanded me. So, the application here is that we must love those we are warning, or we will not be effective. People need to know that we care. In verse 8, we see Ezekiel's heart. I fell on my face and cried out. And this is why God chose Ezekiel. He had a soft heart and he really cared for people. He cared for those he was reaching out to and warning. This is tough love. You can be tough without the love, but we need to be tough with the love. We need to have compassion. People need to see that we love them and we're not being judgmental for the sake of being judgmental. Jeremiah was also known as a weeping prophet who was strong on the outside. He was bold. He was standing up to the false prophets. But when he was alone with God, he was praying for his people like nothing else. He was weeping for his people. He didn't want to see them judged. And a couple of quotes here. Though Ezekiel had many times announced such a severe judgment when he actually saw it carried out in his vision, it made him completely undone. Another one from Taylor. For all Ezekiel's outward appearance of severity, beneath the hard shell there was a heart that felt deeply for and with his people. He did not relish the message of judgment that he had to give, still less the reality that followed when the message was rejected. So remember the visions where God told Ezekiel and also in Revelation where God told John to eat the scroll? And God's message to them was sweet in his mouth, that the righteous would be saved, but bitter to his stomach. Why? Because he's got to share about the coming judgment. There's good news and there's bad news. And the same will be true for us if we share God's heart. We will rejoice in our salvation, but mourn over the judgment of the wicked, sweet and bitter. Now Jesus also cried over Jerusalem when he pronounced judgment over it. So this is the attitude that God also has. So a couple of scriptures from the New Testament that describe God's heart towards judgment. Because sometimes we can think that oh, God just, you know, he's a man with a big stick and he wants to just smash everyone who's sinning. But no, that's not quite the way it is. Matthew 23, 31-39 Therefore you are witnesses against yourselves that you are sons of those who murder the prophets. He's talking to the Pharisees, the religious leaders. Fill up then the measure of your father's guilt. Serpents, brood of vipers, how can you escape the condemnation of hell? Therefore indeed I send you prophets, wise men and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Assuredly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. So here's Jesus. He's given this really strong speech to these religious leaders. Watch his next sentence. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets, and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. You see his heart? Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. How often I wanted to gather your children together. I wanted you to be with me. I wanted you to be in a relationship with me, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. 
For I say to you, you shall see me no more till you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And that'll be at the end of the tribulation. Another one. Another time when Jesus was coming in. I think this is when Jesus came into the city on the triumphant entry. Luke 19, 41-46. Now as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. So he sees the coming judgment upon Jerusalem and he's referring to the judgment when the Roman army in AD 70 would come around and build the siege mounds and there would be famine and there would be death. I'll read it to you. It says, For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you and close you in on every side and level you and your children within you to the ground and they were not leaving you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. So like Ezekiel, he warned the people, he saw the judgment and he cried. Jesus, as he's coming into the city in his triumphant entry, he sees this judgment in his head. He knows what's going to happen. Remember, he's God. And he cries. He goes, oh, this is so awful. And then what does he do next in verse 45? Then he went into the temple began to drive out those who bought and sold in it, saying to them, it is written, my house is a house of prayer, but you have made it into a den of thieves. So you can see that Jesus is not doing this because he hates them, but because he loves them. But he must judge sin. So again, I just want you to notice that God does not enjoy judging people. The, the coming judgment on Jerusalem by the Babylonian army caused him to weep. He's looking ahead. He's like having a vision in his head and knowing what was going to happen. He wept. So, if we don't want to be judged, then we need to judge ourselves. Remember, God starts his judgment in the church. If we don't want to experience the discipline of God, then it's very simple. We judge ourselves. We figure out, okay, what does the Bible say? Am I doing it? If I'm not doing it, I better start doing it. If I'm doing something wrong, I need to stop doing it. And then I don't need to be disciplined like God, do I? Move to verse 8, Ezekiel's question. Ah, Lord God, will you destroy all the remnant of Israel in pouring out your fury on Jerusalem? Now, can you picture Ezekiel begging God? Ah, Lord God. His heart's breaking as he sees in his vision these angels killing all these people, the people who are not marked. So, like a true man of God, he was faithful to intercede to the very end for his people, the ones he loved and the ones he wanted to come to God. So do we have the same heart for those people that we love to come to the Lord? Are we really interceding with all our heart? It's hard. It's hard to keep doing that faithfully. I find it becomes almost like a rope prayer sometimes and praying for my family every week. So maybe we need to ask God, well, I need to ask God to give me more passion, to give me more of a genuine love for them. So my prayer is not just words, it's actually heartfelt. And God's answer to Ezekiel in verses 9 and 10, he says, The iniquity of the house of Israel and Judah is exceedingly great. So God basically says, it's fair. They've sinned a lot, therefore they're going to be judged a lot. And the people are saying, the Lord has forsaken the land and the Lord does not see. And this is 
they repeat from chapter 8 verse 12 again what it means is the people were refusing to accept responsibility for their sin and were blaming God for their current circumstances isn't that easy to do we get ourselves into a pickle and we say God how can you allow this to happen to me so since the righteous are marked the fate of the wicked is sealed for them there is no hope of escape so as Numbers says can't remember exactly but your sin will find you out your sin will find you now we come to the last verse in this chapter verse 11 and I've called this the angel with the ink horn reports back to God so Verse 11 says, Just then the man clothed with linen who had the ink horn at his side reported back and said, I have done as you commanded me. Remember, this is the angel. So, this is an encouragement. Why? Because there's been people to mark. Yeah? Ezekiel's message has reached some people. Some people have been marked. Some people have believed. Now, the application for us to finish with, serving with humility and submission. So the angel reported back. These are powerful angels. These are glorious creatures. How do they serve? Well, they do what they do obediently. Then they come back. Yes, Master, I have finished what you've told me to do. They have a humble and submissive attitude to God. A quote by Clark. Angels and men must all give account of their conduct to God, for although he is everywhere and his eye sees all things, yet they must personally account for all that they have done. And the same is true for us. We should be serving with a humble and submissive heart. And Jesus describes what this looks like in Luke 17, verse 7 to 10. It's from the NLT. Paraphrase. When a servant comes in from plowing or taking care of the sheep, does his master say, Come in and eat with me. No, he says, prepare my meal. Put on your apron and serve me while I eat. Then you can eat later. And does the master thank the servant for doing what he was told to do? Of course not. In the same way, when you obey me, you should say, we are unworthy servants who have simply done our duty which account it as a pleasure, as a privilege to serve Christ and not to be expecting reward for those things. Remember, why are we serving? Because God has already given us so much. Everything we do should be out of appreciation. We do things humbly and with a submissive attitude. In verse 11 it says, I have done as you commanded me. Now, I'm praying that we can all say this at the end of our lives. I have done what you have commanded me. Who was a perfect example? Who led by example with his perfect obedience and submission to the Father? Well, of course, Jesus. And he said the same thing, basically, in John 17, verse 4. I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. So what was Jesus doing? In complete submission to the Father. He's reporting back. He's saying, here I am. I've done what you wanted me to do, just like the angel did. I have completed the task. Paul could also say that he finished well. And what's his motivation? It's his reward based on his desire to please God and his love for Jesus and longing to be with him 
and also be found faithful when he returns at the rapture. Remember, Paul didn't know when the rapture was going to be. He was living in the expectation of the rapture. So may we live with the same motivation and goal. May we look forward to hearing Jesus say to us, Well done, good and faithful servant. So I'm just going to finish by reading 2 Timothy 4, 7-8. to And we should have this as like our motto, you know. When we get to the end of our lives, are we going to have regrets? Or are we going to say, no, I did things God's way. I sacrificed those things for God. And now it's all worth it. Second Timothy 4, 7-8 to I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Is it Titus 2.13? It talks about the, the hope, the glorious appearing of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. So Father, I thank you for the opportunity that we have had to understand more about how you operate, Lord, that you are a just judge and you do not condemn the innocent with the guilty. Lord, you are fair and those who choose not to repent, those who choose not to receive the gift of forgiveness, the pardon for their sins that was bought by Jesus, paid for by Jesus when he died on the cross. They have no excuse. They are literally going to hell over Jesus' dead body. They are refusing the gift that you have given to them. But for us who have received, I thank you, Father. I thank you for the gift of your Son. I thank you, Jesus, for being willing to die in my place. And Lord, we just want to live lives which are humble and have a submissive attitude, knowing that we don't deserve anything. Lord, we owe everything. Help us to understand this and to just repay this debt of love. As Paul said, the only debt we have to repay is the debt of love. To keep on loving you. Help us to do that in Jesus' name. Amen.